there, Mr. French guy. Would you like to get off of the train with me? A normal American girl? Oh, ho, ho. I do not know. This is very unexpected. I have a place to be in Paris. Oh, well, I understand. But in the future, you might regret saying no. Oh, that is so romantic. I will go with you. Okay, here we go. <laughs> That's if before sunrise was <laughs> was different. Like, like if, like if, if, if the girl was the guy and the the guy was the French girl in the train. All right, hi, hello. Here we are, ready to talk about love. It's you know I've I've often thought about like the things like I'll I'll do a French accent. And I won't be worried about repercussion, like, even a little bit. But it just baffles me how, like, the French are such an easy target. Even Germans, I could do a German accent. But when you tell me to do, like, a Mexican accent, yeah, it's crickets. I'm, I'm not doing that. No, the answer is no, you know? It's, it's poor, poor French-German people, you know? They're just, everybody can make fun of them. They're, they're just free game, you know? But anyway, um, yeah, we talk about love today. We, we talk about love and the many different ways to feel it. Uh, I've, I've, I've felt like I've done a whole lot of horror. Uh, October was a very busy season for me. I love horror. Uh, honestly, it's, it's my go-to. Uh, I don't necessarily like, like seek out love films, but I'm not, I'm not going to turn one away, especially one that has like a reputation, you know? Um, and the, it, this movie is worth the reputation. It's got uh, Before Sunrise, the very first film in the trilogy, uh, is 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, which the only other film I can think of that has 100% just off the top of my head is Casablanca, which is an adequate like contender, uh, you know, for 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. They're they're both I mean romance romance films, and they both end in like odd terms and and whatever. Uh, so I'll say it now, spoilers, 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 uh, for all three movies. Um, but we have a great conversation. I really do think that if you watch this movie, you'll like it. Just watch before sunrise. And by the time you're done with that, if you enjoyed it, which I, I assume you will, uh, you're going to want to watch the other two. You're just going to go down a fucking hole of, of watching these movies. Cause you just want to see where it goes. It's it's like when you see uh you know the cover of a magazine and you read it and you're like oh that's stupid and then you pick the magazine up you know. Or I guess clickbait is a better is a better judge uh for that for for these days. But it's just you want to keep watching their shit unfold. It's nice to see somebody else's life uh you know take take risks where where I wouldn't get off the train with a strange man. I wouldn't do it. Um which is why I don't have a romantic partner right now. Maybe I would, though. Frenchmen asked me to get off a train with you, all right? Hurry up. Come on. Get at him. Uh, my, my guest today is Emily Penta. We were acquaintances in high school, uh, and we were just messaging each other, you know, out of the blue. Um, I think I re responded to, like, an Instagram story or something, and then we got to talking, and, uh, and apparently they've you know, had some experience working on theater productions. Uh, they've you know, taking a film film theory class or film film analysis class. 
But at any rate, they're uh, they're a fellow connoisseur of films, uh, and they they suggested this film series, which I had I'd heard about it like in passing before, but never got around to watching it. But yeah, it's it's boasted as a uh, film series that uh, takes nine year intervals to look at a romantic relationship uh, to see like how it develops uh, organically, uh, and it wasn't planned. Uh, I I was under the impression that it was planned. But either way, the charm is still there. You see characters uh, from the first film nine years later, same exact actor and actress uh, in a different, you know, dramatic situation. Um, and then nine years later, again, you see them again. Same people, same story going on. And it, it's just very interesting to, to think about aging with the characters. But anyways, watch the film. Uh, you won't be disappointed. Um, and then come here and listen to the episode because we did a great job uh, breaking down the different films and, and reviewing the entire trilogy. So it's not going to be a waste of your time. You get this entire episode. You get you get to listen to my voice for two hours. Look at you. You're winning like Charlie Sheen. Yeah. The uh, musical recommendation for this episode is a band called Always, but it's spelled with two V's instead of a W. So A-L-V-V-A-Y-S. I don't know, it's hip, uh, but they're hip. If you listen to them, you'll be like, yeah, that's hip. I know that. My first uh, experience with this band, uh, I was I was hungover and I was driving home from a friend's house in Lowell and it was like six o'clock in the morning. It was like really early in the morning and uh, the, the sky was like, like the clouds were bright pink and then the sky in the background was like light blue and it was like an early winter morning. So like everything had that kind of frost filter over it. And uh, and then this band came on on like, you know, a radio station or something. And immediately, like it was like I was part of the atmosphere. It was like like it, the music sounded like cotton candy. I absolutely fell in love first time I heard him. And I, I feel like they're an adequate uh, suggestion for this movie because it's it's all romantic, weird. They call it dream pop, which I, I feel like this film has very like dreamy or this film series, I guess, has very dreamy, uh, lofty tones to it. It's definitely a better recommendation for like the, like a, a soundtrack for the first film as opposed to the other two. But either way, dude, yeah, listen to Always. Watch this film series. You're not going to want to stop. You're just going to start. You're going to, you oh, this is fantastic. I just want to keep watching this. Oh, uh, it's comfy. It's real comfy. It's real comfortable. It'll make you feel comfortable. It's so, it's so bad out there. It's so bad outside. I just want to be comfortable. And I want to look at people fall in love and I want to have the ending. There you go. All right. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the weekend. Hello. <laughs> hi. Hi. Hello, Emily. <laughs> Hello. I'm sorry. Was I supposed to come in there? I no, thought... <laughs> no. So I caught you off guard because I, I just did this whole thing where I was like, this is the script. And then, so yeah, no, but this is good because this is usually also <laughs> nice and organic. Yeah. yeah organized I, i'm organized. sorry i thought i was gonna watch you do the too long don't listen um in front oh, of me sure. <laughs> i didn't say hi to you i'm sorry no uh, well that's yeah no you oh you overestimate the quality of this show no, that's <laughs> that's all afterwards no yeah. good. i was just gonna like sit here and listen thoughtfully no i'm very happy to be here though i'm glad i can start talking right away because i yeah. love my own voice so <laughs> yeah 
yeah no no cow noises uh you know no. this early on or sorry technically early on for us but it's it's later it's all in, in yeah. the post um yeah yeah so uh i'm kyle i'm emily and this is not film school absolutely um yeah, which is it's, it's weird uh, having a name like that and then covering a movie like this because this, this <laughs> movie belongs in film school for yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's it's almost too good for me to cover it. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm allowed. Like I, I, don't I literally right. watched the second one in a film theory class. Um, it is part of what I studied in college. It was literally a class dedicated to film, so I felt um, confident in choosing this when we talked about like what we would discuss uh just because i was like oh you know this is like a really accessible film but it's just highbrow enough that it, it may be um really excited to talk about it and in depth so just to, just yeah. highbrow enough <laughs> it's uh i mean along with uh my dinner with andre it's definitely one of those movies where while i'm watching it uh i know that people like me like it but I can totally tell, like, especially uh, even because um, you got the romantic, romantic ideals with uh, before sunrise and then uh, before sunset and stuff. But I could just hear like at the back of my head, like my older brother while I'm watching before midnight, mm-hmm. where like, especially during the fight scene, it's like, why the fuck are you watching this? this is <laughs> yeah. yeah. It hurts feelings. Like, why, why are you subjecting yourself to 30 minutes of that? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I, I'm totally with you there. I watched the second one first. So the weight of the romantic relationship wasn't what originally pulled me into it. Like, obviously they have that chemistry, but the chemistry of their conversation, I was like, I want to keep watching more films like this. And fortunately the first film is very similar to the second. Um, so when I went back and I, and I watched the first one, um, you know, getting those long, conversations about life and the way that they're relating to each other in the world i just thought that that was um awesome and so i was really excited to watch the third one as well i put it off for as long as i did because they did the first two nine years apart and so when uh before midnight came out in 2013 i was i had just seen before sunset so i was like okay well i'm just gonna put off watching the third one for as long as possible on the off chance they make another one in nine years and then I don't have to wait for it as long. So uh, ideally, I wouldn't have to wait past 2022 if they do end up making another sequel. So yeah, I, I calculated it too. I yeah. want to finish the third one, which is, yeah, I don't know. I, like, so I had, like, I was thinking when I was watching like the second and the third one um, because they did make each of these ones, like as according to, uh, what's his name? Linklater or Linklater mm-hmm. or... Link ladder. Yeah, I yeah. see link later, so I'm gonna roll with that. <laughs> yeah, link link. I, I I was thinking like you know emphasizing different parts like link litter, you know. <laughs> I don't know. It's just link ladder sounds a little. It's weird to me, but yeah. <laughs> um, but it's it's his last name. I don't know, the poor guy <laughs> or fortunate guy. We'll just call him Rich. So yeah, Richie, my guy, Rich. <laughs> um. Yeah, but supposedly each of these movies is uh, is meant to be individually digestible, and they worked meticulously on exactly that aspect. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I, I, he, he said that, and I was like, Are you sure? Because <laughs> I, of course, watched it chronologically from you know first one, second one, third one, and uh, yeah, I felt like like context really mattered um, for the other two. Uh, did it make it better for you? Um, 
So I think it might have set a bias because I definitely like the second one the most. Um, so I think just because that was the first one I watched, that's probably why. But I, I hear what you're saying, because especially in Before Midnight, they just call back to the first two films and the events of those days so frequently in like what they talk about, what they argue about, that I was just... I, I get what you're saying though. Like, I'm not sure I believe when he says that these should be freestanding. Like certainly a person could watch before midnight and enjoy it as it is, but they're going to want to go back and watch the first two. If that's the first time they've seen it. Uh, mm -hmm. Just there's a lot of context that you're supposed to understand. And it assumes you have seen before sunrise and before sunset. Um, I think anyway. Yeah. I thought I saw somewhere that, uh, cause they won awards after, uh, after before midnight <laughs> um so that like before midnight seemingly like set off a whole chain reaction of different fans who went back and watched other movies um and i was like really because because <laughs> yeah before midnight is like the least hopeful one like yeah it just it makes me wonder like because the, the thing about these movies too like respectively is that they all very much touch into um like personal like relationships that you remember you going through yeah and i do wonder like with all of the different relationship turmoil that like we're experiencing in the world right now like where people are like the idea of a relationship is so fucking amorphous yeah you know like there's so much different like identities and labels and and situations that people are you know they're like experimenting with mm -hmm. that um yeah I, th I think that the the turmoil that midnight before midnight presents uh, a lot of people like because i yeah i was hearing arguments in that movie that i've heard fucking like in the past couple of years between friends and stuff like living in different apartment situations and having like friends break up and then hearing one one person's side and the other person's side mm -hmm. uh i remember what's her name celine said literally like uh i feel like pressured not to have kids or like, or like, or like you put me through having kids and I feel like as a woman who is striving to be like strong and independent, uh, that I completely compromise myself just having kids. Mm -hmm. And then there's like the concept of like throwing her ambitions away at the whims of a man. And that comes up in, in personal conversations all of the time. Yeah. So. In all three films. Um, no, totally. I actually think some of what they argue about in Before Midnight, which must have been filmed in 2012 or 2013, you know, some of it's like ahead of its time. There are things that Celine talks about, like you think there's like, you still believe in magic. You believe there are fairies that follow you around and clean up your socks and like clean up things behind you. And like, what's the name of our daughter's pediatrician? Uh, there's a term for that called um, the mental load. And uh, it's usually used to describe uh, the wife and mother in a household as being the manager of the household. And that is an added stress of invisible labor that people don't see. So I just thought that the fact that she's describing that, like we have a vocab word for it now, and her arguing about it um, with her husband just felt very real to me. And I was really thrilled, actually, that it came up um, just because... I think that it was a, the conversations are accessible, but boy, was this argument they had accessible as an audience member. Like you really felt for both of them and you also hated the other one at like different times. I just, it was really thrilling to watch. And yeah, that was fantastic yeah. the way that they, they worked yeah. on the dynamic of the argument. Cause like, yeah, at yeah. any given time I was like, oh, Ethan's my man, you know? And then yeah. like, <laughs> and then another time I'm like, oh, 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 you did what Ethan? You know? Yeah. 
And yeah, yeah, I was like, Celine, pull your punches for God's sake. <laughs> like, no, I totally, I totally feel you there. Cause um, yeah, no, that, yeah, absolutely. I just thought that was probably one of the more electric conversations those two characters had ever had was when they were fighting. And obviously there's so much more depth to the relationship and the timeline, you know, they've had nine years together solidly at this point. Um, of just being a, a couple um, together and having kids together. And I just thought that um, just what that brought to the way that they related to each other, it wasn't this romantic, I only got to talk to you very briefly, kind of um, condensed pressure. Like, you, you know, they had a deadline in Before Sunrise and Before Sunset. They don't have a deadline in Before Midnight. So we're just watching them argue in real time and uh, I don't know if that makes sense. So I, yeah, I just it does, yeah. I thought it was great. The whole argument, I just loved watching it as horrible as it was. It just like between those two actors, I was thrilled to watch it. So, yeah, I was never really uh, like a practical fan of uh, Ethan Hawke. Mm-hmm. Um, and after watching these movies, I was like, yeah, he's he's pretty good there. Mm-hmm. The natural uh, naturalness with which they deliver their roles is fucking unbelievable because, yeah, you think that things are uh, impromptu, which. I mean, they wrote the dialogue, so it, it is like so personal that they can immediately connect, which I mean, in acting, I imagine it is harder if you're only supposed to deliver exactly what you know, the writer wants you to do. Like if you had a, a a role in writing those lines, it's probably easier to make it more yourself, which is exactly what uh, Linklater was going for, um, which was yeah. genius. I, I thought the whole thing, the, the production and the, the honestness with which he went at it and stuff too. There's another quote from him um, that Ethan Hawke was talking about in an interview mm-hmm. where, yeah, Julie said like halfway through like making, I think it was like the first one or the second one or something. Like, this is just really boring. This is a boring movie. It's it's never going to work out. Like, everything's flat right now. And then uh, I called him Link in my notes. Link. <laughs> uh, he said, I haven't been bored for six weeks while we've been creating this. So if someone can't sit with you for two hours and not be bored, then I don't like them. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Like, that. that yeah. there's so much, like, compromised uh, in the creative world for exactly that reason, trying to generalize a, a message. And I think that this movie oh. resonates so strongly. Like for me, it resonates very strongly because of the shit that I've lived through uh, and experienced and the people that I know, you know, it calls up a lot of emotion for me. And that's because he like hyper concentrated pretty much for the individual instead of the masses, you know? Yeah. I didn't know that. That's um, that makes a lot of sense. I'm really glad that by the time before midnight rolled around he felt like I can stick to this and if people don't like it, they don't like it, but they made it as a labor of love. I really didn't know. I didn't know that that quote was out. I didn't know that was out there. I think that that's really cool that they were able to do that. Um, It's definitely true. You see in interviews and everything, you just see how Julie and Ethan understand the characters. I don't know how much of a hand they had in the creative process in the first film. I still think they grasped the characters just fine in the first film, but by the time that they're involved in the writing, I think, it felt so natural. It felt like we were watching two old friends who have been together for this long because they have such a profound understanding of their characters and they know exactly what they would say in that given situation. Um, yeah, I, that's really cool. So. Yeah. During the first movie, actually, uh, after... So Ethan Hawke got sent the... Um, what do you call it? The, the script. And he read yeah. through it and he, he was like, 
yeah, this is kind of like lame or whatever. But then he realized that he was being asked to be in the movie. And he was like, okay, I'm going to pretend that it's not lame and then like, see if I get cast. And then, you know, maybe afterwards, if I do get cast, I can bring up like discrepancies or whatever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, what I wrote down, which is like bit vaguely things that he said, uh, Ethan was a little critical of the long winded monologues. Uh, so Linklater brought Hawk and Delphi in on the on writing their characters. So he did okay. okay. the first one. Uh, they started a, a kind of a dynamic uh, creative process with all three of them. So yeah, Linklater would pretty much say like like read these lines. If there's anything you don't like, immediately throw it away. And uh, and that developed over time. But whereby before midnight, they started all three of them like they they all like lived in the same room. Actually, this is really cool. So. Yeah. <laughs> before they like started the filming and all that stuff, like during the writing process itself, uh, they all decided to get like a, a shared hotel room uh, in Greece to live with the three of them together, uh, just writing the script out. And it took like 10 weeks or something. And that was a different process than the other two movies. It was a lot longer. Like it took a lot more time. And they said that that directly correlated with like, or not directly correlated, but it helped a lot with writing characters who had supposedly been together for nine years. Mm -hmm. Like there's a whole lot of time and contention and like bottled up feelings and you get pissed off and, and you argue within 10, 10 weeks, you know? Yeah. So absolutely. I thought that was really cool, but it's, I, yeah, yeah. yeah, I love that. No, no, you go, you go. No, I was just going to say like, I love that that was a part of their creative process and it totally makes sense. There are people in my life who I have loved, but they were also my roommates at one point. And I remember not feeling great about it sometimes. So um, yeah, I just, think that's really cool that they did that and it's certainly um that trapped feeling that celine is kind of describing at one point when they're in the hotel room i wonder how much of that was inspired by that real experience that's really cool to think about yeah yeah but yep. do you want to go back actually i'd love to talk about uh before sunrise and like because i we jumped right into before midnight so i'd love to go back a little um if you want to do that yep. yeah yeah um, yeah, so with Before Sunrise, um, I just really liked a lot of things like having rewatched it. Um, I got a lot more out of it this time because I felt like there was foreshadowing. So the whole, you know, premise about this is like, well, they only have one night in Vienna and we don't know what's going to happen after that. Celine actually kind of foreshadows um, in that conversation where they're on the train and it's just that really long shot. I love all the long shots in these films where you just realize you've been watching an uninterrupted conversation for 10 minutes, but she foreshadows it because she says that she and her first crush never saw each other again. They said that they would call each other, but it fizzled out as all things in life do, um, you know, and they'd lost touch and it's just foreshadowing without you realizing it. Um, and I thought that that was really cool. And yeah, I just, I, I don't know if you picked up on that or I guess you wouldn't have, it was your first time watching it, but if you go back and watch it, like um, there's other things, you know, in the first movie, you see uh, Jesse reach over to tuck hair away from Celine. And he he's like, I don't know if we're close enough that I can do that. And he like pulls back. We see the same thing happen. And before sunset where she reaches to touch his hair and she's like, I don't know if I can do that. And she withdraws her hand. So I just um, I liked how the first film informed what they were going to do later. Um, I thought that I don't know if they planned it at the time. I don't know if they planned this whole arc for these two characters, but um, that was just the first thing I noticed upon rewatching it. So. Yeah, they they didn't. Um, the the whole nine year increments. Mm -hmm. 
just happened naturally. So they made the first one and it was standalone. It was out of their minds. And then eventually, like nine years later, um, they kind of got to talking and then created. So because I thought the same thing. I was like, did they? Yeah. When you yeah, when you look at the Wikipedia, it's proclaimed as like a nine year interval film series. Yeah. But it was it just organically happened like that. It wasn't planned beforehand. There was actually an article I found that um, Richard Linklater actually was inspired by a real woman he met. Um, so Amy Lairhop, he met her and they had one day that they spent together and um, she actually died uh, the year that uh, before Sunri Sunrise was released or the year before. And he didn't know that until um, before Midnight was coming out. Like he had gone through the whole second film and um, and everything and he didn't know that. And I thought that that was, that was not something I had known before. I, I looked into that after, um, but just the, I don't know. I just think of <laughs> it just uh, how that, story took shape without them planning i liked that you know maybe nine years later they were like okay i think i've speculated about whether or not jesse and celine saw each other again six months later long enough that i'm gonna write a whole second movie and and we're gonna play this out and i think that that's i didn't know that that's really cool but they uh if, if you want a whole other level of, of emotional pain mm -hmm. um he actually made the second movie as a response because he never got in touch with the girl so Linklater made the yeah. first movie and was hoping like secretly that maybe she would reach out and find him and he would find her again. Yeah. Uh, and don't we see that in Jesse? He wrote this book about Celine, hoping it would bring her back to him. And yeah. what an irony. Uh, not yeah, ironic. So was, it was intentional, but yeah. Yeah. He was hoping that Sunrise would do, sorry, sun, um, Sunset would do that. He was yeah. hoping it would like kind of mirror. So like it's his second message out there like, hey. Asshole, <laughs> I'm here. In a decade, <laughs> did you see yeah. the thing I made for you? <laughs> yeah, what the fuck? Um, I'll even so go yeah, to France this hurt. time. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it makes it hurt so much more, you know. Yeah, but, um, absolutely. Ugh. Yeah. Also, he was planning originally to film it in San Antonio, and that's another thing that uh, Hawk was like, "Yeah, I don't know, man. That's weird." <laughs> which i've been to san antonio it's real nice but yeah um yeah. it seems that they kept that though because jesse's from um texas, texas yeah. yeah so yeah so yep. um i kind of like that even the characters at one point address like uh we just have these long conversations in beautiful european cities <laughs> like <laughs> maybe not unrealistic you know to like go to such old places and like have these talks about life and everything like that but i i really did appreciate like the acknowledgement of the fact that like okay we're gonna walk around vienna now we're gonna walk around paris and now we're gonna walk around greece and like i i think that that's i like that they acknowledge that and it it just kind of um supports the romanticism that is ultimately the underlying story that we keep coming back for is if these two people with this connection are going to be able to have a happy love story. Um, but yeah, just, I, I don't mind looking at Paris in the meantime either while they, yeah. while they have these conversations. Yeah. Yeah. The other reason that they're so infectious as characters though, I, I think is definitely in like the, uh, the shit talking and the, um, yeah. And the, the making fun of each other and, and the, the way that they're self-aware, like the first one uh, definitely tries very hard to be self-aware of, uh, what a romantic comedy is and how to not fall into that trap. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what, for me, makes it feel a lot more like 
like good art because we we all know the vow and like the notebook and yeah i mean frankly i like i like i like those but (laughs) they're good i actually really like the vow but um yeah but there is a guilty pleasure to it you know like like a well yeah like you know like i feel like i i feel hesitation but i could totally openly just be like before sunrise fucking rad you know yeah um, no i mean like some, a- some of my favorite movies are ones with love stories in them like moulin rouge which is just like a t- giant acid trip with uh musical theater numbers in it um but i come back for the love story and that's ultimately what happens with me in these films like certainly i like being drawn in by these conversations they have these prolonged moments and everything like that but i i want to see them kiss <laughs> so but they have that self-awareness of like we the sun was going down and we're on a ferris wheel and we just had that romantic moment like la da like they kind of poke fun at themselves after but you know it didn't make that kiss any less special um to watch yeah well that's also i mean for me personally like i love making fun of myself especially after i'm yeah. like romantic or whatever like yeah. i'll fucking like I'll do it. I'll go there. I'll be that guy. But afterwards, I'm definitely gonna make fun of myself for it. But um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a question that's asked a whole lot, like from the first one to the second one. I'm sure they probably said it in the third one, and I might have just missed it. But I specifically made a note when I was watching the second one, like they said it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what is love? Like, what is it? Is it quantifiable? Can we figure that out on this podcast right now? Can we like <laughs> come up with a definition that works? <laughs> Um, I think that's the most contested question, you know, um, everybody's going to have a different answer. My, my generic answer is it's all about feeling and the fact that it's this feeling that people can have, and you can't really explain the source, but you know, it's this powerful, overwhelming attachment to a person, you know, it kind of happens to you and you, you realize like, Oh yeah, I'm in love now. Like, I think I thought I felt it before, but no, this is like this undeniable instinct almost. So I think that that's what Jesse and Celine have. They try to rationalize, you know, they, you live in a totally separate continent from me. How are we going to keep this going? Um, Wouldn't it spoil it to keep it going over the phone? And we're just going to fizzle out like every other relationship we've ever had. But that feeling um, just draws them back. It just when they see each other again, it's just, it's still there. And that's not quantifiable. The years apart didn't disrupt that feeling and of connection and him being married certainly didn't disrupt that feeling of connection. So I just think it, it's that instinct that they have. Um, so that's my answer. I'd love to hear yours, but yeah. I think that it's a stupid question because it's, Oh, did I just ruin that whole thing that you were playing? No, no. Okay. No, no, that was a a good answer. Oh, good. Oh, good. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, for for me, um, what is love uh, is kind of a false, not a false dichotomy, but it is too simple. It's not like what love of who? Love of what? Is it a place? Loving a person? Loving, is it loving your mom or, you know, loving your dog or... (laughs) Because love is a general feeling of, uh, I don't know, I give a shit about you, you know? Yeah. Is it a verb? Um, Is it a noun? Yeah. 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 It fits into too many different uh, categories. And romantic love, um, I think that a lot of people are always asking themselves, what is love? Mm -hmm. And that's why we get like these crazy, I I mean, codependent um, 
relationships where people think that love has to be this humongous gargantuan thing that like you feel for forever always yeah and it just doesn't work like that you know uh, like love is yeah like i like i've always defined love as like because you know i've gone through things and, and there are people yeah. that i care about and then they fucking disappoint the shit out of me and then you know i still care i don't know why and i guess that that is some kind of love mm -hmm. um so yeah, I, I feel like love is it like for me, love is just genuinely like wanting somebody to win no matter what. Mm -hmm. So depend regardless of what the fuck they do, like you still want them to succeed at something. So you know, my brother's an asshole this week, but I still hope that things work out for him. You know, mm -hmm. in, you know, in the end of whatever the fuck he's heading towards, or you know, like you know, this chick cheated on me, but I still hope that she's you know doesn't. Like, I hope she finds love and, like, works on herself, like, whatever, like, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, I'm single, by the way, so <laughs> so I'm not like, oh, I love my significant other, and but I, I will when I get there. Um, yes, yeah. I, I do think it's important, too, to not let love be, like, taken from you by yeah. people, too, which, yeah. But that's my roundabout answer. About I like No, I like that answer, certainly. Um, describing the rooting for the person, no matter what. Um, I, I think that that's... A, the a more concise way to put it you know you, it doesn't mean that uh there's plenty of couples out there where they don't support each other you know they want the other one to not succeed because they personally are not succeeding and that's an internal problem people can have but i think the way you just described it concisely puts that you know like if you really had that wholehearted love for somebody you'd want them to succeed even if your life's not going so great um but yeah i think i just um yeah, I just am very taken with Jesse and Celine. There's just something, I don't know what it is. And I think they've found that unquantifiable thing between these two characters. Like, I don't know what it is about them. Maybe it's the way they talk to each other, but you feel it. And I don't know if you get that in every, you know, romantic story you watch. Like, I don't know if you believe it every time. And I wonder if these films just hold up as well as they do, because I believe it between those two characters and the way that they're written. Oh. yeah no me me too um yeah they uh they actually like with raising the question in like one and two like what is love yeah they actually do have a an at length conversation at the dinner table in the third one mm -hmm. uh, where they define different types of love and uh and actually i wrote down a note of codependency on that one because they somebody defined it or described it or something do to do yeah, okay, so I think the old guy says that at the end of the day, it's not the love of the other person, but it's a general love of life. And he uh, says that uh, my wife took care of herself and expected me to do the same with lots of room in between. So, yeah, I, I don't know. There's a lot of, like, other things that you hear from other people and conversations going on. Like, manipulation is a huge word used today that, I mean, maybe even 10 years ago wasn't as part of the... The vocabulary when talking about relationships and yeah i think that that's a very good like way like anti-codependency is what i wrote but mm -hmm. yeah like being individually healthy people working on something like i mean reasons that i would avoid a relationship is if i'm going through a particularly caustic um shit show myself yeah. and then somebody goes like like i think i'd like to date you and i'm like no <laughs> Cause I'm a fucking head case right now. And I like, cause that's not how relationships in my opinion, that's like some relationships, they really get hurt by that where uh, like one person is like fully like established and stuff. 
and it is a constant like battle between two people to try to get on the same level. No, I think you're I think you're right. I, I think that that's the healthy approach people should have. And there's those. Um, how can you expect somebody to love you 100% if you only love yourself 30%? Because then they come along and love you 40%. And you're like, that feels like a lot, <laughs> but they should be loving you 110%. You know, so I think it goes back to that. And you don't want to be resentful. That was exactly something that these two characters discuss is I don't want to have resentment for you because I'm preventing you from doing something. But they're so codependent that that is a huge catalyst for their argument in this third film. Um, and that term resentment got thrown around a few times. Oh, but yeah, I actually wrote down like, yeah. they're talking about resentment a whole lot here. <laughs> Wonder if this is going to come up somehow. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing, though, is is he, he talks like in their very first conversation uh, on the train in before uh, sunrise. The first thing he says to her, like he walks up and goes like, uh, I don't want to like regret this for the rest of my life. I think he mentioned at some point too, like, um, if we no, he mentions at the end of Before Sunrise that if we stick together, then we're going to end up like growing into some old couple that's going to resent each other or something. I don't know. He said something similar in that first conversation, rather at the beginning of Before Sunrise. He says, okay. I want you to get off the train with me because in 30 years, when you're arguing with your husband or something, or like you're looking at your husband, and you're like, oh, he's so mediocre. I really wish I had just like run away with that random American guy I met on the train and like, Jesse's describing like I want you to know that you didn't settle and that like you are supposed to be with this mediocre husband of yours and that I'm not that great so just let me prove it to you and like and that's this whole argument but um I didn't even think of that until you just said it so yeah I, that's yeah. fun to think about he's now become the uh the husband that she's uh arguing with and and everything that he foretold yeah well the other cool thing though is that they were uh like in the event of running away with each other from the train mm -hmm. to hopefully like assuage their future feelings. They then both went on <laughs> to get into other relationships where they were dreadfully unhappy. And they were thinking back on that day with each other. Yeah. And that was their reason to eventually leave each other. So he was exactly right for the wrong reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, that's funny. And yeah, dude, the second I finished Before Midnight, I was like, I'm, I'm going to have to watch these again. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the kind, have, of, the kind of film you pick apart, you know? I have them rented. I might be revisiting that argument um, after we end the podcast here. I might go back and rewatch and, and um, just to take that all in again. Um, something else I noticed in terms of how the films mirror each other that I really enjoyed is the use of montage. So at the end of Before Sunrise, we see all of the places that Jesse and Celine have been in Vienna and where they've walked through. And I noticed upon revisiting Before Sunset this time, they show us all the places they are going to be walking together and exploring together um, in the opening of Before Sun Sunset. Um, and so we see all the places that they will be going. And I was waiting for that to happen. And before midnight, I'm like, when is this going to happen? When is it going to happen? And sure enough, after Celine leaves the hotel room for the final time after their argument, we see Jesse take in the landmarks of their argument, you know, the uncorked wine on the table, the messed up bed sheets, um, her abandoned cup of tea. And that serves as the montage that we otherwise got in the first two films. And instead of it fixating on these are the beautiful places they're going to have conversations about life, this is the ugly things that are left over from their argument. 
Um, mm. I thought that I was so excited when that happened. I had just been kind of like waiting, when's this montage going to show up? And it surprised me in a really um, interesting way. I didn't expect that montage to come. I thought it was just going to be scenery. I didn't expect it to be that emotionally weighted. Yeah. Uh, the the third one, well, um, yeah, the first, the first two were definitely like hopelessly romantic. Yeah, absolutely. And even in yeah there's a there's a form of of um a verbal contrast that uh in the the writing the script does so fucking well like because there yeah there's the the very i don't want to talk about the end of before midnight in the middle yeah but... we can save it <laughs> we'll save yeah, it but it won't come up again i'll just save it <laughs> but um at the very end I say spoilers too. I'll tell people. I'm, I'm yeah. honestly going to tell people like watch the fucking movies for starters. And yeah. then to listen to this, but like just the whole thing, digest it with us. Um, yeah. I certainly have movie... not been holding back. So I'm sorry to anybody if I spoiled it for you up to this point, but what were you going to say? Sorry. At the end of before midnight, they, um, yeah, they're both sitting at the dinner table and then, uh, you know, she's sorry. He, she's sitting by herself. And then we're not sure if Ethan's going to come and try to save the day, uh, or Jesse. Um, and he, you know comes over sits down at the table and he's like hello ma'am i've got a letter for for you from your future self and i you know i visited a time sorry i'm, I'm here from a, a time machine or something yeah uh and it's disgustingly corny it's gross and when he gets towards the end of it we feel like selena's being charmed like she's she's there with him and and we're like okay it's gonna be a happy ending and then she immediately crashes <laughs> the fucking hopes when she's like no this is real life you know and uh, and then I like it was like a weird internal turmoil. I was like, oh, no, like, oh, like, oh, it's safe. Oh, no, 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 no. She's she's <laughs> really going to do it. She's really because because I feel like they definitely write these movies to be unpredictable and to kind of fuck with your expectations. So you kind of assume like they're going to try to end it. Like I, I was kind of thinking that they were going to have Ethan cheat on her because of the way that he he kind of there's a younger girl that kind of walks by him earlier in the movie and he kind of holds eye contact with her for a little longer than like long enough for me to be like, okay, he's checking her out. And then actually right after he checks her out, there's a friend that's sitting next to him and he looks and makes eye contact with the friend and the friend gives him a look like, were you checking her out? (laughs) You know? And uh, so, yeah, I was really worried like, Oh, are they going to make it like that where, you know, like he cheats on her and then they have a whole conversation about it. Is that where they're going to go? And then they didn't. Mm-hmm. but then it turned out that he actually did cheat on her yeah and maybe she cheated on him so i was like oh shit i expected it but it already happened ah yeah that prolonged so, eye contact with her i didn't catch i was like oh okay we're just gonna watch this beautiful girl as she walks away but i thought that was more the camera and not necessarily his perspective i didn't catch that um mm-hmm. that's yeah yeah that was a very um one of those ugly moments that was revealed that I wouldn't have expected. I, I just, from seeing these two characters that just threw away their entire established lives just so they could be together again, I would never think something as frivolous as a one night stand with somebody would even enter their like realm of existing as a couple. Um, that just, yeah. I don't want to say like beneath them, but like almost beneath them like we watch them have these lofty conversations about life and how deeply they connect on this like almost spiritual level and i'm like really you're just gonna like you're just gonna fuck some random person like that just sounds like that was the least last thing i expected to come up um definitely i was really surprised yeah but i mean 
that is another uh dialogue i think mm-hmm. with uh that that these these adults like uh between ethan um what's her name uh judy judy not julie judy, julie uh ethan julie and um link <laughs> <laughs> i think as adults like having gone through their relationships and having written this like nine years later and being like you know in in their 40s and stuff it's something you see a whole lot uh with like older couples and stuff cheating happens um and with some couples like you understand that it's not like cheating is or or sex in general is not it's a whole different set of needs Mm -hmm. and um when you're with somebody for like 40 years or like 20 years even or or whatever I can imagine like the like thoughts pop up or you go like so my I'm a child of divorce. My my parents divorce. Mm-hmm. Um and it turned out that my uh my dad, hey there everybody, let's hear about my fucking life. But um <laughs> my dad ended up cheating on my mom uh it, when he was off on a, in, in a different country like doing business stuff. And uh like that sucked uh and that hurt, but I'll I I've said it before and I'll say it again. I I don't hold it against him because I understand that over time, like you like relationships get like schisms and stuff. And like, you, like the act of cheating is not where your relationship fell apart. Technically, it's whether or not you feel the need to re bridge the gap afterwards. Yeah, So the cheating, the cheating immediately tells you that there are structural problems with your relationship to this other person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the cheating is not like so. So, yeah, I, I think that the, the fact that they had potentially cheated on each other added more weight to the reality of their long-term relationship. That's a really good point. And um, yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that. I guess it's just, um, but in that context of like, it's, it's meaning a different set of needs and it represents like a later step when at the beginning there was a bigger problem, Um, which it was such an afterthought in the conversation that, Celine and Jesse had like he was like oh yeah that like he like almost like didn't remember he had like slept with this random person um but I think that ties in more to what you're saying of just they've been together long enough that it wasn't like this person was feeling an emotional need for him it was just just lust probably and it was such Mm -hmm. an afterthought because he can't conceptualize loving anybody else he even says that in this film you like you are the person I love for the rest of my life and I know that. And I'm just like, there, nothing's really going to change that. Even another, you know, random fling is essentially what he says. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's important to keep it in there though. Um, definitely yeah. because of the way that they, they write these movies to make you as a person, like immediately feel that heartthrob for them. Mm-hmm. So definitely like, like my personal favorite of this trilogy is before sunrise bar none because yeah that an original feeling like maybe it's because i am uh you know young or whatever is like i still feel like i'm stuck in that that like first date area where there is like there's people that you remember and you're like yeah that was a really good time maybe i'll run into them at some point or maybe i'll run into this person like there's still that weird sense of hope that that movie leaves off with where they're like will they meet again yeah who knows (laughs) um yeah and i like yeah, I, I feel like yeah, Sun Sunset is definitely more of like a, a like a pre marriage uh, film. Which, by the way, congratulations! Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, um, I don't turn out <laughs> entirely like before midnight. But thank you. Yeah. 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 Um, 
Yeah, but you argue and shit. I don't know. It, it happens because yeah. I have been in long-term relationships. You argue with people, you, you know? absolutely do. And just the only thing that... It's just funny to me how they have this, like, almost not over the top. Like, it's not over the top. It's a very grounded conversation between these two people. But, like, their, um, their love story is much more fantastical when you consider the elements of, like, he ran away with his mistress in France. And, like, it has, like, kind of, like, that grand romantic gesture that happened. And um, it's funny to me how quickly, once they were finally together, they settle into this routine that very commonly we see of you have two kids and and your parents now and um you hope to juggle your jobs but being a parent becomes your identity and that very much led a lot of the argument that they had um in the third film uh particularly from celine's perspective and uh, the thing i also wanted to mention was in terms of relating to characters you said earlier like jesse's my guy ethan Hawke's my guy there's a lot of things with celine i you know, relate to particularly in Before Sunrise, I think is the most I relate to her of, I I want love, I find love fulfilling, but I need to be an individual person first. And I feel like we see her go back and forth on that, of whether she's going to fully succumb to this romantic night with Jesse, or if she's just going to try to rationalize herself out of it, like, I'm going back to Paris tomorrow, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, have this whole thing. And we just kind of see the great crescendo of that by the third film. She has taken a chance and she's fallen headfirst into love, but it has come at personal sacrifice that she had always hoped to avoid. Um, and I, I don't know, there was just something about that. I did go back and forth in that argument of like, okay, girl, like some, some of this, I, I don't agree with what you're saying, but like the whole um struggling with the identity of motherhood being all consuming um kind of went at the beginning in this conversation where i was like i think this film was a little ahead of its time um at least in terms of the language we use you know motherhood being all consuming i much more feel like it's a conversation that happens now um than maybe you know about a decade ago um when they were starting to work on this film so yeah, yeah. If, if not that like it was it was exactly on like at the time that that question was being raised, you know, like it was being yeah. brought uh, to attention generally, but that yeah. is weird how I dude, actually funny enough. Um, what's his, uh, the name of the movie? He made another one. Link ladder made boy waking life. Oh, okay. Sorry. I was just going to start. I was going to say school of rock next. Okay. Sorry. Continue. Did he make school of rock? He made school of rock. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. And very not that. similar to these three films at all. Um, nope. yeah. Not at all. You would have no idea. Um, but yeah, what yeah. were you gonna say is about is that? What happens when he's commercially successful? Because that movie's got a lot of heart, though. So he's not totally sacrificing uh, the creative experience there. I think. But um, yeah, yeah what he's got other movies. Yeah, what's this other? He's got one? the Waking Life. The Waking Life is like. Uh, have you ever seen Sleep Corp LLC on Adult Swim? Uh, I know the name, but I have not seen it now. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's really trippy, and it's got this art style that's like, it's like motion capture. So they they have people okay. like actually moving around, but then it's kind of illustrated over, um, and it's one big like existential fucking blob. Um, and I I like I always get really anxious like just seeing that. Uh, I never watched it, but I watched uh, I watched a trailer because of this, where actually Celine and uh, Jesse are featured in it as uh, like a short like five minute clip of them talking about um specifically universal consciousness 
and the idea that if one person's like kind of finally figures out one way to think about something then all of a sudden like 10 other people pop up and they all come up with similar solutions and so you know like like for some reason like everything syncs up and and there's a collective consciousness where you know people start thinking about like like strong feminist vibes here and like it feels like such a particular argument when celine says that like she feels like she is because she has had a child she is now tied to that role of being a mother that maybe then that like all you know started raising at the same time i don't know it's a cool thought yeah no i get what you're saying and then um there's also things about this film that I noticed kind of were ahead of the conversation. Um, one of the things Celine lists that she hates and before sunrise back in 1995 is that she yes. hates when men tell her to smile. And I feel like I have not heard that dialogue until like two years ago. Like it definitely like it has always bothered, you know, the women of my life, but I don't feel like that was like a mainstream thing that women were like, Hey, please stop telling us to smile. That shit annoys me. Like, mm -hmm. I was yeah. like, wow, Celine was ahead of the curve. But Link later was ahead of the curve back in 1995. And now we have this conversation around like, Oh yeah, I've always hated that, you know? And it, the hive mind, as you described, definitely um, gets raised out of, is it like pop culture is pop culture informing us or are we informing pop culture? I guess. Yeah. Yeah, but there, there's yeah, there's a weird relationship there because if anything's, if if something is reaching my eyes, then that means that somebody else has put it there. You know what I mean? Like it it got there somehow, either through a network of different people who heard the argument and then agreed with it and then shared that you know a conversation or shared this movie. Uh, so like the the act of something being successful immediately assumes that it's resonating with people. Mm -hmm. and that's why they or, or people are investing in it and spending money because they see it and they go like okay a lot of people will resonate with this so that's why i invest in that because i think i'm gonna get return on it so even between like you know shitty businessmen or whatever um yeah the i like the idea that ideas are becoming propagated and part of the general conversation like they got there because we all started developing with it but yeah i will say definitely uh her anything that she says in uh and before sunrise, it's all very ahead of its time as far as feminism is concerned. That's yeah. pretty good shit. shit. Yeah. Good and the 90s yeah. in general represent this in between of second wave feminism and third wave feminism, because you have the daughters of second wave feminism in the 90s. And I, third wave feminism is currently what we're in. And that's, um, uh, I think that just kind of informed what they discussed in Before Midnight the most. I feel like a lot of um, the issues that Celine raised in that argument that she has with her identity as a woman are relating to um, what it means to be a woman in third wave feminism and trying to juggle the dream job and also have it all as a mom and also have a healthy relationship. And can she have it all? And that so ties into third wave. It, it does. Um, so I just, um, yeah, I just couldn't help but notice that, um, you know, it's been 18 years with this character and I would I would say like the way it was written really just reflects I would say the evolution of um, women in the same age group as Celine. I think it really represents that correctly. Um, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. yeah, I can't remember if it was sunrise or sunset, but she also said very early on um, in a conversation like about like what is love or whatever. Uh, she says that she wants like she wants like love she wants a man and a, a relationship and and clearly like 
she followed her heart on that and like got with Ethan and then had kids and stuff. I think I wrote it but, down actually what you're talking about, but keep going. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She, she says like literally like I want those things, but I feel like I'm like giving a piece of myself to like, I was, she feels like she, she's not allowed to do that stuff and be an independent woman at the same time. Yeah. So she's not allowed to pursue like a romantic relationship and then have a house and kids and then still be identified as independent. Yeah. The line um, I think that we're both thinking of is I don't need a man to feed me, but I need a man to love me is what she says. And um, yeah. And she's also grown into the, by before sunset, she's grown into the woman that the fortune teller predicted she would. Uh, this self-assured woman who can stand on her own and is great in her own way. And um, maybe that's why Jesse gets so flippin' knocked over by her when he sees her again. He's just filling his eyes with her that entire yeah. second film. He's just like, I can't believe she's in front of me. And he's so in awe of her at all these different moments until um, until the end, really. Um, so just seeing it's not like she's fallen, you know, from the second film to the third film, but her identity has certainly changed and has a friction within itself that it did not have in the first two films. Cause she was just worried about herself in the first two films. And now she's worried about her family in the third. And I think that really just informed. I just loved the third film so much. I was very captivated by it. If you can't tell by how much I keep calling back to it, I just, I was so captivated by it. Yeah. Yeah. She definitely, uh, like, past the first one, uh, I definitely felt like she was, like, her neuroticism is turned up. Yeah. And it's uh, I, I, I do think it's... Now. Say again? It's projected onto other people now, because now she's neurotic about how her kids' suitcases are packed, you know? And, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, and, like, that's where that energy's going. Yeah. Yeah, the neuroses are, they're kind of apparent in, uh, in number two. But um, mm-hmm. another cool dynamic, which I, I think is interesting um that the, the the fortune teller brings to mind too is that uh in the fortune teller conversation like she's like why don't you believe because ethan immediately is, immediately is like like she's just telling you shit you want to hear you know she's mm-hmm. saying stuff that's what all these people do they tell you something nice and then you give them money and then they walk away um and when it comes to the second one uh they make it clear like part way through that she is like there is no god there is no magic i don't believe in any of that shit and it's kind of funny because he flips and he's like well you know well what about blah and so like they have like a character shift where she's like into like you know possible like you know tarot readings and stuff and then all of a sudden she's not and he might be you know yeah where do we think we landed where do we think we landed in the third film i think she still seemed very i think she called him like a pretend christian or something like that or she she like joked about Christianity to him in the third film. So I wonder if they, she still maintained that there's no magic worldview in some way. Yeah, I didn't think about that, but they went into a church. Yeah. In the third movie. And then. I don't know, he's he's like. They're having a, a like an intimate conversation, I think, about, uh, you know, blowjobs and uh, <laughs> he's giving her funny looks like, well, we can't talk about that in here. And she's like, oh, what's wrong? Can't talk about blowjobs in the church. <laughs> and, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, maybe because I mean, in relationships, you know, people more. So maybe she was bringing that up to kind of bother him or mess with him a little bit. Yeah, so maybe maybe he is like he's straight up because, yeah, he's kind of like ambiguous in the second one, but maybe he is straight up religious ish in the third one yeah i don't know 
he was also very disillusioned um, in the first film because he had just had that whole disjointed breakup um, with his on again, off again, you know, girlfriend. So maybe that's just because, you know, Celine's last breakup had come like months before their meeting and before sunrise. Maybe he's just still kind of salty <laughs> about his his relationship <laughs> ending. And we're seeing that kind of inform his choices in the first film. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love that kind of continuity, though. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the swap I didn't pick up on necessarily. Like they do kind of flip flop in like in terms of like this is what I believe, but I didn't detect the not believing in magic thing or like spirituality thing regarding the fortune teller and how that changed by the second film. That's a detail I missed. Yeah, but that's with, with any good like actually like this is this is why movies like this. Like I'm definitely thinking like being a film geek like all the shit that i talk about in this this podcast is literally like continuity and whether or not like you know did the director intend mm -hmm. to have this this way like dude can i give them credit for that which sounds like like oh do do i have the authority to say whether or not this guy actually thought like about the the plot progression and like you know the symbolism and the motifs mm -hmm. um and like I, I don't know maybe i do maybe maybe i can maybe i can't but in this in movies like this i love them so much because they give me that feeling of um like it's something that you can live in like it's something you can really like watch as many times as you want and there's there's always going to be something that like and it's not just in and of itself where it's like oh wow i didn't notice that it's like something that adds depth to everything that you saw yeah um and like it adds a a, a literature to it like a movie movie as literature which i yeah absolutely is a growing uh trend um mm -hmm. kind of got a little foggy there for a little bit not not very poetic movies out there <laughs> but i think it's coming back a, a whole lot i think cgi fucked with everything because everybody wanted to make crazy big explosive budgets but yeah now we're not we're not fully yeah. out of the remake zone either like why don't we just make it live action so it can't <laughs> go free to copyright like or yeah. something like that um i think we're still in that zone very much which makes visiting these conversation rich films very enjoyable um and they're very original in a way because i can't really think of another um series so focused on characters that's realistic like i can certainly think of you know eight movies for harry potter and we're with those characters while they grow up and everything like that but there's a whole added layer of like magic and this world building thing that you have to focus on it's not just about the development of human characters and and these films are just development of human characters and that's the beauty of them that's why we're debating like was this spiritual flip they had a choice or is it just because humans are gray area and change their minds and it just kind of happened naturally in the writing um whether or not they realized it um yeah it was really great to revisit these films um really i really enjoyed it i'm probably gonna like rewatch them again before my rental runs out on them too <laughs> so yeah yeah i have them on um hulu hulu is streaming them or maybe it's HBO Max. I, I think know. it's HBO Max. I, I was going to flip my table over here. If you said it <laughs> I had to give Jeff Bezos my money because I, I, that's the only way I had access. So. Poor, poor thing. I know. Uh, yeah, there's other stuff. <laughs> there was specific like questions I had. Like, oh, yeah. Like, I'll ask that particularly. Oh, yeah. On the argument, whose side are you on? Like, who did you ever end on a side? Like, whether or not in, in Before Midnight? 
predominantly think, uh... Celine. And one, it's because I'm biased, so I always identify with female characters. But two, he was just acting like a prick sometimes. She's like, hey, it'd be really nice for me if I got to um, play guitar and like write songs again like I used to. And he's like, okay, but like when I write, it's not a hobby, which is true. And then he's like, and I threw my whole life away over a song you wrote, calling back to the second film. Um, But then he's like, you would have time to do that if you weren't just bitching and moaning all the time is basically what he says. And I'm like, I want to, I want to be able to see both sides, but he was just being a dick. And does she actually like waste time complaining? Like, no, what's probably happening is she's like, Hey, can you do this? Because as I mentioned earlier with mental load, you know, she's the manager of the household. Can you pick up your socks? Can you do this? He perceives her nagging as this complaining that he's now saying like, Oh, you just bitch and moan. And like, no, she's probably telling you what to do around the house. So she doesn't have to do it. So she can go fucking write a song that she hasn't done. And since her twins were born, you know? So, um, Ultimately, that's where I ended was on Celine's side. I'm like, I think I, I just very relatable with like, I don't want to give up the work I'm doing so we can get your son um, every other weekend. Like, I don't think that that's reasonable. And uh, oh, and before I, I hand it over to you, the other thing that I had a problem with in this argument was like, he says, let's just be rational. Let Can we just talk about this rationally? And that that one just sent me into a rage because he's going to define what's rational. Her very passionately explaining, I don't want to give up my job is going to somehow make her too emotional and too illogical to have a conversation. Like, no, like it shouldn't matter if she's mad, like her emotions involved in it. Like you should care if you're hurting a person that you say you love, like you should care if you're upsetting them in some way and making them play by the rules of what you determine to be rational just so they can have a conversation with you is totally unfair. And it always comes from someone who wants to move the goalposts in that argument. And they're going to decide like, oh, I can't talk to you like this. Once you kind of like call them out on something that they want to get defensive about. So yeah, yeah I actually, I wrote down the quote. Oh yeah. Uh, a quote, <laughs> Jesse, I want to have an unemotional, rational talk about it. Oh. And underneath my note is now that is something that I have heard before. <laughs> um, general, like, oh, I like the, the 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 dynamic between you know um, feminism and uh, your masculinity or whatever. Yeah. Um, they they've said it was like in the first film it wasn't like completely present to me. In the second film, I definitely saw it developing. In the third film, it's like that's part of the entire backdrop. Like even around the the dinner table when they're talking early on, they're talking about. Um, yeah, they're the, I think they said something about uh, do 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 masculinity versus femininity mentioned mentioned twice. Yeah, you know, woman, a woman wakes up after a coma, and she thinks of you know, how's my mom? How are the kids? Uh, how's my dad? Like you know, where like, how how are my finances, etc. But a man wakes up and he looks at his cock. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like I, there was like it was a whole backdrop the 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 dynamic between masculinity and uh, and femininity and yeah he goes on some rants like early on in the car he's like like I want to be there for my son because he throws like a girl and yeah they, like, oh yeah that was fun <laughs> yeah um yeah I think that they might have like that just when he says I want to have an unemotional rational talk about it that looks like like when I heard it it was like taken from 
it, like it, it could be cookie cut from from like a real life conversation like between a, a man and a woman because that's like general that's like that's the phrase that men say you know mm-hmm. um i'm not guilty of it ever <laughs> but, uh because yeah because when i hear it i'm like, ugh, ugh. like yeah it's yeah, gonna well, come up a lot in political conversations like why can't you just be rational and use the facts and it's like because people are dying and i'm upset it's like you should be allowed to be upset it's an emotional thing so that's what it, that's i think why i like physically had a reaction to him being like can we just have a rational conversation about it like, oh my god can you just yeah, give was... up your life please can we rationally talk about you giving up your entire life and moving our whole family to america <laughs> like, yeah ugh. I, I do think they did a fantastic job going both ways. Because Celine is yeah. also a, a dick. Yeah. Oh my god! Like, I was like, girl, she starts off. Yeah. Like, I, I would say like the the initial catalyst definitely her, and then the yeah. the, the definitely the end is like Ethan's an asshole. So, yeah. but that's the fantastic thing like about writing not in like they did enough to cater to one side and enough to cater to another side where nobody is actually technically right. Yeah. She Um, busted his chops to the point where I was uncomfortable at the beginning for sure. And like, he never asked her to move to Chicago. She's like, he wants me to move to Chicago. And he's like, I did not say that. And you can like see them talking over each other at dinner. And I'm like, Ooh, girl, this is a hundred percent your fault. If you fight about this later, I didn't, I didn't mean to predict the future, but (laughs) obviously, obviously they were like building to it um, throughout the film. But like, I was just like, that was a hundred percent her fault for agitating him about it. Yeah. But that's uh, the other subtlety with that too, is I, I do think that generally, um, it's a non-argument like it's not like there is no right answer mm-hmm. uh by design um because they don't want you to like either side with celine or, or jesse mm-hmm. and my two examples of that is first off um it isn't technically her dream job because yeah in the car in the car early on in their conversation uh she says like i don't know do i even want this job should i take this job like you know, fuck him. And then, sorry, Ethan says, like, you you fucking hate that guy. He's a prick. Yeah. And, you know, he's like a salad or whatever. And then she goes like, yeah, I don't know. I guess I want it. Do I want it? Should I go? And then later on in the conversation, she's like, it's my dream job. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Ethan, Ethan says something, too. That com- I don't, okay, no, there is the other part of the conversation where later on when they're having the fight, uh, she does make that point of, like, like, what? We're going to go over there to have, like, like every other weekend with your son. So I'm going to completely give up my professional thing. So you can do everything that you would be doing here, except every other weekend you get to, you know, hang out with your kid. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that that was a strong part. And I think he, he kind of flips at that point where he's like, yeah, that is a good point. Yeah. And you see it in like his facial uh, expressions that he's like, Oh fuck. Oh yeah. As, as a viewer, I was like, Oh good. They're going to stop fighting now. Cause they're calming down. And then it's so did not stop. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is also just a good example of how normal relationships work. Cause... The ebbs and flows of an argument. It totally like they have ebbs and flows of conversations in the first two films. They're like, is it going to be this big far fetched thing about life? And then it's going to come back to the romantic story. Instead, it's these very real arguments about life. And then it's going to come back to the romantic story. It oscillated between argument and non-argument throughout the third film there's so much more uh tension that wasn't romantic and sexual it was just tension of anger um and mm-hmm. it just um yeah that but i'm with you in terms of like does celine actually consider this her dream job and she's really just having doubts about it like no i think she was like fearful of what 
her life was going to look like if she actually like made the concession that like, yeah, I'm not happy with work. And now I have to uproot everything. Like she was operating on fear when she's like, it's my dream job. And like, we as viewers are like, bullshit. We don't believe yeah, you. Yeah. So I heard you earlier. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're lying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do too. Yeah. The whole, uh, I wrote this down too. Cause like I was getting kind of meta about it. I like, I'm sitting here like, Mm -hmm, yeah and then i'd pause it and, like somebody would say something fucking mean and i'd be like all right so she's insecure about that and that's what's charging this you know argument and then like you know i'd hit play and I'd, and then somebody would say something else and i'd pause it and be like oh okay he's you know he actually cheated on her that's that's significant i felt like a social worker <laughs> i felt like i was uh like a therapist doing like a group session between a like a wife and, and a husband you're like, just, just a like... counselor just sitting back and watching them go back and forth yeah mediating and stuff yeah. um i think in the end though i think celine's right yeah i mean being somebody who has grown out without a dad and knowing plenty of people who've grown out uh, without a, a dad mm -hmm. uh we generally turn out awesome <laughs> can confirm you know? for you yeah <laughs> yeah i know plenty of people who suck but yeah yeah no, I, I don't really know anybody who grew up with like a great dad and and the people that did grow up with great dads they turn out to be fantastic people so i'm not saying that that's yeah you know, but there, there's many ways the family can look without fucking up the kids there's many ways yeah. the family can be set up and it's not just what ethan's character is picturing yeah i yeah i wouldn't say that it's not gonna be an insecurity of the son yeah. and there, yeah there's another line of dialogue too where celine like answers a phone call and then says to the kid like you know like good luck with your mom and then ethan says like yeah that's don't say that to my kid that's really fucks with him and then she says like oh he's grown up enough and um, yeah that really starts the whole thing too um yeah whole argument yeah, they th that hit struck a chord with me because um that that there's a whole um phrase uh, in psychology for that too, which is it sounds like gross when you first say it, covert incest, mm -hmm. which it starts with like blurring the lines between like treating your your a kid or a child like they are an adult like sooner than they are. So it yeah, it's weird because even at the age of like he might have been like fourteen or, or twelve, who knows? It's a little bit ambiguous, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, either way he's still like a kid like even a, an 18 year old as a parent you don't blur that line between like like choosing sides or like you know making fun of somebody else's parent like it's it's something that if i was a kid and somebody was talking to me i'd be like ha 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 yeah and i'd be playing along with the game but it would fuck with me uh in the long run so i think ethan's totally right on that account where he's like like don't don't undermine the the mom like i don't like the mom she sucks but yeah. But still, you don't like don't make don't make him the subject of that contention between me and his mom. You know, yeah. I thought that was really cool of him as a character. But yeah, I, yeah. I definitely um, I was with him for that. And it's funny because I didn't pick up on it until he said something about it. And um, good luck with your mom. Like, I didn't think much of it when she said it. And he was like, hey, he's going to internalize that is basically like what Jesse says, like, my son is going to internalize that you don't like his mother um so don't do those things and then she gets defensive because she didn't think anything of it and then when she does really think of it she's like well i think him laughing about you know the whole situation is gonna help him work through it but it's not her decision to make she might be a step parent but the kid's got both of his biological parents in his life that need to be making 100 percent of the decisions for him like she can certainly you know have a role in his life but you know she also says like i joked about mud wrestling with your mom like his mom and everything like that like that's not 
cool. That's not acceptable. And you don't want to make this kid feel any weirder about this than he needs to, especially while he is a child. I think he's like maybe 13. Can you say edible? complex? Yeah, like, yeah. He'd still be a kid, even if he was well into high school. Um, yeah. Yeah. Young enough. Yeah, like, I'm, like I was saying, like even, like, even at the age of 18, just don't fucking make it weird for people, you know? And yeah, yeah. like, I, I got that vibe, too. And that's why, I, you know, the phrase covert incest comes to mind, too, where, mm-hmm. like, me and your mom mud, mud wrestling, like, I just don't put that image there i don't want that you know (laughs) um yeah shit fuck shoot damn it what other swears do i know i don't know they say the c word in this movie that happened Mm -hmm. celine said it i was just gonna suggest that i was like i don't know how kosher we are here i know we can swear here (laughs) i don't know if i'm gonna drop see you next tuesday here yeah It's not off. You can say it if you. I no, just feel I like, yeah, I was gonna suggest not, that. So I'm not allowed to. I don't like ever. <laughs> no, you don't say it. Out of my dialogue. No, never. No, no. I, I think it's reserved for people who are absolutely deserving of it. But I need 100% proof before I say it. And if I say it, it's because I'm still mad in the moment. Mm-hmm. But it is one of those words that, like me. You know, being as aware of the world as I, I am, it's just removed from my dialogue so that, like, I don't even have to filter it. I just, it just doesn't happen to me. That's good. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I guess I don't have to think about it as much because I uh, identify as female, so I'm I'm all right there. But <laughs> it's yeah. kind of like a reclaiming the word thing for me, I guess. Yeah. Same thing with bitch. Like the N word. I, I, like, that's just gone for Not me. For us. Never, yeah. <laughs> I can't even. Yeah. So, like, the, yeah. see you next Tuesday. Just not allowed that's not one of my words (laughs) okay but i'm gonna add a layered question here so was there a moment where you were like "Ooh, you are just acting like a big old c at any point for either of celine or jesse at any point in the films i i would say you know probably before midnight is the most contentious it gets so was there a point where you were like "Ooh"? from uh an emotionally intelligent standpoint which is something i pride myself on being (laughs) No, never. Because I don't think of things like that. Even in yeah. daily conversations with people, like I, I always try to see like, like if you say something fucking hurtful, um, I can see where it's coming from. And it's, it, yeah, the, the thing, the subtleties here too is like, if you think about the characters and like their deep backgrounds or whatever, like why is Ethan so caught up on her subtly saying to the kid? Um, good luck with your mom. Like, why did that string accord so much with him when she didn't even pick up on it or like she didn't intentionally malicious, uh, maliciously say it. So I don't think she's a, bi- a bitch for saying like, even bitch. It's just a word I don't like. But, yeah. Um, I put you in a tough spot with that. No, there. it's a gray area argument. It's a gray area conversation. We're talking about how we flipped flopped and, and agreed with both at any given point. Um, yeah. yeah. I think like talking about the fact that, uh, jesse's ex-wife you know took his son when celine had to go to paris and and give birth like i think that that whole thing opens up a whole can of worms about how custody can be really fucked um well i was was gonna say it too um yeah the reason that the phrase like good luck with your mom and then undermining the other mom might be so um poignant with uh jesse or ethan hawk because he was a child of divorce yeah that was that was something that was made clear in the first movie and it clearly like he takes on like a whole emotional like visage uh when he starts talking about like his relationship with his parents 
uh, and how how it had affected him as a kid. So like little phrases and instances like that, like maybe um, they are not as clear to Celine as they are to Jesse. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't realize why it might hurt him like in almost a retrospect kind of way. Maybe that, yeah, my parents are still together. So maybe that's exactly why I didn't pick up on when she said it either. I feel like you and I are coming at this in a very mirrored way that Celine and Jesse did. Cause I think that's a really good point that he maybe picked up on it being a child of divorce and it forming his experience. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so her saying it, and there's also cultural differences too, between yeah. like, you know, French people and having arguments and like, specifically like the openness of, uh, of sexuality is like complete, like in this movie in general, like they're all at a dinner table talking about screwing. And I'm like, <laughs> I like so openly, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so when she likes, when she says stuff, like she tells him like, you're terrible in the sack. Like everybody, mm-hmm. you know, talks, talks about you. Like you're some kind of like, like macho man but you suck and <laughs> like i thought that was funny but i could see how it'd be hurtful mm-hmm. um as she meant yeah just, yeah yeah but the, the the it's little things like that when like during their conversation like i didn't necessarily think she like was she's not she, she i'd never say that she was entirely in the wrong he was never entirely in the wrong because they do have more things built up behind him because so for when he like he doesn't mention Chicago and moving to Chicago, but you can kind of pick up that maybe in the past he has wiggled against her in different subjects until he gets his way. And maybe that's why she's so quickly like before it even becomes a problem and she makes it kind of into an argument. She knows it's going to happen because of what he's saying early on. Mm-hmm. So that's why, um, even though she, he never brings it up. So like we kind of credit him with that. Like, Oh, he never even mentioned, you know, going to Chicago. Yeah. But we get the feeling that she's been through this song and dance before. And that's why she's so pissed off about it. Yeah. And maybe he is passive aggressive in the ways that he's about to try to make her do it. Yeah. So, she certainly yeah. wasn't well enough. She's like, you always get like this when your son goes back to America, you always get like this when he leaves. So why don't we talk about it in a month? Almost as if she knows in a month, he'll, he'll be back to normal. Um, Yeah. I keep saying, um, yeah, every time I finish something. <laughs> so, but I just, yeah, the, uh, him being passive aggressive, um, she definitely had her own passive aggression where it was, it reminded me of like, when you witness a couple fighting and you're like, should I be here for this? And like, it's just kind of the underlying, they're going to really, they either already argued about this or they're really going to argue about it later. Just that dinner scene where they're just, with the other couples, uh, I, I felt so uncomfy. Like I had so much secondhand embarrassment of like, if I saw that happening across me, I would not be able to like laugh it off as everybody else in the scene is doing. That felt very real of, uh, and realistic. It was, it was icky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, like the office, one of the office feelings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. This was just the Scott's tots of the trilogy. <laughs> Yeah, well, it had, I mean, it had to be. Um, yeah. What else would it have being, been building to? Yeah. Yeah, well, being a, a very realistic uh, take on romance that, you know, that it boasts to be, um, they say a lot of cynical stuff in the first two movies about, like, oh, how it's going to end up and how, like, we have a false ideal of, like, this person's going to be the right one. And, sh- I mean, sure enough, no- nobody is that. Yeah, nobody is ever the perfect one. And you can have this whole romantic background and backdrop and then still end up in a situation where, like, they cheated on each other, you know? 
-hmm. So even with, and maybe even that much pressure from having like the knowledge that they have this whole romantic uh, public, like New York Times best-selling love story behind <laughs> them, they feel like this taboo of like, like now I'm not allowed to fall out of love because of like, you know, the, the depth of the story that is the reason that we're here, you know? Mm -hmm. So I can see how that would, you know, but, but yeah, this movie had to be uh, kind of a, an arc to the climax of, of, of that exact conversation. Like, like is love uh, going to be perfect all the time, always? And the answer is a resounding fucking no. Yeah. Like you get through the honeymoon phase and then, and then it's just life as, as it is. And you can tell like these people have these crazy passionate conversations I think she says this too she's like could you imagine walking around 100 passionate all of the time always it's exhausting it would literally like your heart rate would always be like ah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think it's before they meet the poet on the uh on the river is when yeah. she says that i think you're so, right. somewhere around there it's hard to differentiate because they're always walking and they're always talking and the camera's always directly in front of them yeah. what artist will they encounter now <laughs> Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to go over specific because I'm coming back to before midnight because I'm so fixated on it, but this is the first time we've seen them interact in a world outside of just a few characters. Like these people have names and we are watching a whole dinner conversation with, I think it's five other people. And it's just, we've never seen that before. They're so invested in each other. The conversations in the first two films are so centered on the other, on each other apart from, you know, talking to someone who's going to sell them a ticket or, you know, a, a small like side conversation with the fortune teller or the poet, they're just so fixated on their story and um, having their argument just be about themselves and the problems that they're having with their family dynamic is probably just because they're distracted by other people around them before that moment. This is the first time they've been alone. Um, like we, they were alone in the first two films and this is the first time being alone is towards the end of before midnight when this big argument happens and in, in like the last third of the film and they had to be focused on their kids and they had to stop fighting when their kids woke up in the back seat and, and everything like that. It just, um, it almost felt like, uh, I don't, it, it very much kept the tone of the first two films while still being very different and, and involving these other people. Um, and now these other people have informed their argument and their conversations. Yeah, I, I I felt it felt a lot more polished uh, the third one, and I, I mean that could be a whole other reason why I liked uh, the very first one because the uh, the candid nature of it and the the spontaneity, like even the second one had that charm too because the the second one uh, they didn't like I said they didn't plan it they just all of a sudden like nine years later were like yeah we're all thinking about this let's do it um, there's a like, yeah, kind of a, a, what do you call it? A momentum to them. Um, and I do feel like, maybe it was like the, the you know, 4K that I watched it or something. Like, it's just, it felt very polished uh, in a way that I didn't necessarily like, like or love. But it did feel more familiar when they got to the second half. Um, yeah. And they started having their own dialogue. But I think because this is one big literary look at what love is, and it's a, it's essentially one big study of love uh, through situation. Um, the reason that they inserted the first part and the reason that they felt the first part was important to have like other people around and have dialogue is because that their dialogue is almost constantly about love and the different types of it. 
Because you got one side of the table, there's the old man talking about his you know, wife saying that we're supposed to you know, take care of ourselves and then have a lot of wiggle room in between. And then at the other end of the table, you have the very young couple um, that are they're talking about like falling asleep uh, with Skype on their computer because they're in a long distance relationship. Um, and actually, a quote from the girl uh, is, I wonder, I wonder if the idea of a love affair that lasts forever is still relevant to us. And uh, she says that you shouldn't focus on love, but mostly friendships and work. Um, which, yeah, there's a studies coming out right now. I saw one the other day that said um, generally people are more happy when they have like tons of like you can be essentially more happy if you have tons of friendships and fulfilling like relationships with people and nothing like big and explosive. And yeah, that that's a whole other dynamic with, I mean, say codependence, like codependent relationships where it feels like the only person you can be friends with is this significant other. And if you do go out to other, you know, with friends, you know, to have like a drink with somebody who you're really close with, it feels like an intrusion on your relationship with one other person. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a lot more that's, uh, that's talked about, but these ideas wouldn't have been brought up organically between a conversation with only jesse and only uh celine mm-hmm. so to extend upon the conversation of love that the movies have already flushed out in the first two movies they they need to bring in other characters to have a more deep conversation to set us up for how we feel about love and what we're about to watch with the fight mm-hmm. and if the fight shows that they aren't in love or if the show if the fight shows that they're still very much in love just you know disagreeing or something you know yeah so yeah she celine straight up says i think the problem that we've been having in this entire argument is that i don't love you anymore um that i kind of i kind of did believe um from her and it's certainly in the way that we've seen them love each other it's just in those two short blips of one day a piece um and before sunrise and before sunset it was just one day and then this is the culmination of nine years at least together solidly and i i believed her when she said it um just the the call back to resentment um i don't want you to grow to resent me i think it's very clear that she's grown to resent him in some respects and in that moment i don't think she loves him i i do think it comes back to her i do think it's this deep deep rooted instinct that she has that you see at the end of the film and it kind of like, she's like, okay, I'm going to laugh and I'm going to play along. Cause I do think she still has that instinct for him, but I think actually working on their relationship to the point of romantic love is, is the work that they would need to continue after this film ends. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well in sunrise, sorry, sunset mm-hmm. when they're in the car ride and then she's like angry at him for having published the book because it brought up a whole bunch of romantic emotions that she had forgotten. Um, She goes on another monologue about how she gave up trying to find that feeling because so many people disappointed her, but she is at heart, like really deeply romantic. And if I were to say like, like I, I thought so too. I thought when she said, I, the problem is I don't love you anymore. That's what put me on edge with the ending where I'm like, Oh fuck. <laughs> like, that's what they're actually going to crash the whole fucking plane. They like, that's the, how the trilogy ends. You know, that's how you got to end it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> cause the custody meetings aren't fun afterwards. Nope. You don't want to watch a movie about that. Uh, but the thing about her, uh, is I do think that true to her character in sunrise or sorry, sunset. Ugh. 
in that moment, she's telling the truth. In that moment, she really does feel like she doesn't love him anymore. But that gets back to what I was saying about like the general landscape of love and how it's not one fucking thing. And so her ideal, like Jesse on a train going over and saying like, Hey, I've never met you. Come on and go on a tour with me. She she's confused because of that, like ideal of love that has been established by their, their romantic story uh, that, you know, gross New York Times bestseller mm-hmm. and how she's currently feeling in this moment. So, I, yeah, I agree. In the moment, she's she's feeling like she doesn't love him. But I definitely don't think that that means that past this movie that they are going to get into a situation so tumultuous that they will divorce. I mean, maybe they do and they don't. But even if after divorce, it doesn't mean that you don't love somebody. Yeah. So, yeah, it's fucking it's wishy washy. Yeah. It's hard to pinpoint. <laughs> I just, yeah, I was very taken with the third film. Maybe it's just because I watched it most recently and it was my newest experience versus, you know, Before Sunset. I've been sitting with Before Sunset and the plot of Before Sunrise for approximately like five years now. I've been familiar with those first two films. And I think that that's why Before Midnight just hit me so hard and her just straight up saying the phrase, I don't think I love you anymore, hit so hard. Um, Hearing about Jesse being unfaithful to her, not something I expected. Um, this third film really just like really took me by surprise. And, um, I'm glad I, I waited to watch it for as long as I did. I wonder how our experiences of viewership are different because I watched what the world knew of those first two films. And I sat with that information for a really long time before I saw the third, um, you know, versus someone in your situation who, who marathoned them probably in like about a week or so, and maybe didn't sit with the relationship as long. Um, I wonder how that experience has differed um, in all of that. I I tried to kind of emulate that a little bit because I watched the first one and then I immediately wanted to watch the second one because I, I want to know what happens, you yeah. know, but I waited a few days. Um, and yeah, we, we scheduled for a little sooner, so I did have to cram the last two. Uh, I watched one and then the next day I watched the other one. I wanted to watch it the same night, but I was like, nope, <laughs> can't do that because I'm very conscious about the, the fact that binging things fucks the whole thing up and mm-hmm taking time for yourself to really digest it and keep the impact. It's, it's the problem with um, TV shows today because everything's being released on Hulu and Netflix and whatever, and it's immediate gratification. So you binge an entire show. Whereas so, so for me, I watched shows like hell on wheels uh, as it was coming out. And I watched shows like uh, breaking bad as it was coming out. Oh, I, I was, oh, that, I was one of the bingers for that. I can only imagine how you felt. Yeah. Yeah. It's worse. Not only because you have to wait an entire year from one season end to the other, but also there were hiatuses mm-hmm. and that, oof, you know, and they, it's, yeah, it's, it's a whole different feeling. You develop with characters a whole different way. And then yeah. when people say that you have so much more investment, when somebody fucks up three seasons of working on something, it hurts that much more. Cause you're like, this is fucking like four years of my life. You <laughs> son of a bitch. Uh, cries <laughs> in game of Thrones. Um, I, yeah. watched oh. game of Thrones. I watched game of Thrones as it aired from season three. So what you just said of like, Oh, I can't believe they did this. Like, the instant gratification of people in my life who started binge watching in season seven. I was like, I'm 
Mm, so uh but yeah not to totally derail that but yeah i'm that was fucking betrayal yeah it I was agree 100%. it was and i don't feel like before midnight was betrayal necessarily it evolved in a way i didn't see it taking shape but it doesn't feel out of character um which um thank god you know like thank god we're not just having this conversation just full of resentment of like oh you just fucked up the whole thing in the third one <laughs> like we yeah, we yeah. see the the through line of all three um but oh yeah it just I'm thinking about Daenerys now. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, what the yeah. fuck? <laughs> we have to make a whole separate podcast. <laughs> they did. They, oh, well, let's break the wheel by doing the same fucking thing that happened last time. That makes fucking literary sense. Whatever. We're just not going to plant Whatever. any of the seeds for this character development. Just to squeeze them into four episodes here. Yeah. <laughs> No, but you get somebody who watches it in like uh like a month and they go like, oh, that was kind of lame. Yeah. You know? That kind of sucked. Yeah. But like somebody who <laughs> was watching from season four and like, you know. Yeah. Like when you when you see Jon Snow get stabbed in the fucking heart and I, you have to wait a year. That was exactly what I was thinking of. I had two different friends who binged watched after season six was already out. I was like, no, 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 no. No, I had to sit with the information. Jon Snow was dead for a year. You only had to wait three episodes. I am not pleased with you. You don't, you don't get to be as mad about it as I was. No, that's exactly, yeah. This has been a sudden turn. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no but it's relevant because yeah. uh because yeah i do think that that does affect um like yeah. my perspective of these films and how i like the objectivity of like like how i would analyze each film and what uh before midnight meant to me because i yeah i think that the strongest film for me was number one yeah um the weakest film for me interestingly was number two that yeah i think i'm biased towards paris <laughs> but um or just oh, like yeah. will they won't break but yeah but what the, i think the things that um weren't so great for for me for number two was first off the length the length was a lot shorter yeah um but that's a little bit by design because they they did it real time so they uh they bird banned that shit yeah which is very cool conceptually and i can see why that is the strongest candidate for uh like a film class mm -hmm. uh and the shots uh, you can tell like it the maturity of of Linkletter as a director, like it, it's going to be more developed and more polished. I mean, yeah, so it's weird because you, you got the spontaneity of number one and the like the the adequacy and the art between like we uh, involved with number two and then for number three, it's it's very polished. Yeah, to a, a point where I think that that affects my opinion of it. Where I because of the way it's shot and because of how like good it looked, I was worried constantly about them falling into a territory of like this has been done before or like predictability where it's like, yeah, at the end of it, like, Oh, either they get divorced or they patch everything up and everything's fine. They still left it on like that weird sour note. Yeah. Where, you know, that they need to work on it. Yeah. They didn't leave it overtly hopeful where they're like, well, everything will work out in the end and we're going to work on it. Cause we're in love and it's fine. Yeah. And it wasn't like the nihilistic, like, all right, fuck it. This is the end. We're divorced, you know? So yeah. yeah. Like, but, 
but I do think that that worked in third at the third one's benefit, where I thought it was going to be like fall into predictable territory, and it, yeah. it diverted my expectations because it wasn't. It was a fantastic movie. It wasn't just like so. What do we do now? And then they sit there in prolonged silence while the camera shot slowly pans out. They were having a conversation actively back and forth while the camera zooms out. So we know that their relationship is still ongoing. Uh, we don't know if that's going to be a good progression or if it's going to be a progression to an end. But it's definitely. Um, the conversation is still happening. Um, the conversations we fell in love with in, in the first film, you know, that they're still talking to each other and um, being playful with each other. Uh, what, what's underlying there is different by the end of the third film, but absolutely. Um, that, that's the other thing I like about all three is like, what, how does this um, play out? And uh, Jesse's character at the beginning of Before Sunset says something, well, to answer that would take the piss out of the whole thing. And um, I really liked that they kept that and um, didn't leave it in this nihilistic, upsetting way. And, and I like that we are going to hopefully speculate on it. And um, if they do make another one in two years, I'll be thrilled. I'll just be absolutely thrilled. And I'll come back here and we'll talk about how they're navigating divorce proceedings or something. And, like, and maybe that's what the fourth one will be around. I, I, before noon will probably be the name, <laughs> but we'll have to see. <laughs> Yeah, I like um I really like how they didn't plan anything, but there are all these things that it feels like they set up intentionally to be in the next one. And uh with him on that like outro monologue where he's reading off of a napkin the future letter from herself or whatever, I do like that's such good like you know, you're you're kind of setting up territory to work with later on when if they do have a movie like when they're older or something like when they're like in their 50s and then maybe in their 60s or whatever i really would want to see the end yeah <laughs> which is depressing to think about because it's not just like it be, we're following the movie series as they age in real life yeah <laughs> so in order to earn the right to see them at 60 like i'm gonna be a completely different person that's just blows my fucking mind too yeah where people who saw this at the age of like 20 something then saw the next one at the age of 30 something. Well, that's kind of been my experience. I had only been in the first couple of years of my relationship with my now fiance uh, when I saw the second one and that kind of whirlwind romance of being taken with someone on a spiritual level. And now I am being engaged and everything like that. I'm closer to the old married couple vibe. Like we've been together seven years now. Like we don't, thank God have arguments like what we saw in this movie, but like the whole back and forth about like, where's our life progression going? You know, like we have to have those conversations. So it, it was interesting for me watching this film. Cause I'm like, I don't know what version of Celine I identify with anymore. I certainly identified with her at the beginning, but like now it's just this uh, thinking about where they would be at the end of their relationship and just how we as people who have grown into these films especially with how long they take in between is such an interesting notion um i hadn't thought of that like what would it look like if we saw the end of the relationship i mean if they did do it in their 60s i imagine it would have to be something like where one of them was sick which i i really in my own no, no, I mean, romantic heart hope never happens to these two characters i, I wanted one of them yeah. to, when i when i say the end i mean death yeah <laughs> Like, I want to see these these old people who like and I've experienced their whole entire love <laughs> just, and I want to see them lose it all. Watch a withered know? Ethan Hawke. Like, I want somebody to lose the other person. That's the stakes I need <laughs> to finish this. It's yeah. the only way the story's going to end for me. 
like maybe they do get divorced and then and they're they're having like one of them is on the deathbed and the other person comes over and the, the whole movie is a conversation on the deathbed about regrets and life and blah mm-hmm. i think that'd be fucking call up cool. link right now <laughs> i have an idea yeah, i don't want to be i don't want to be responsible for that <laughs> and i trust them they've done so good so far i'm sure that they'll they'll yeah. Because if that's my expectation, I want them to subvert the shit out of it and make yeah. it hurt hurt the right way. But yeah. yeah, I love watching actors come into an understanding of their characters. It typically, um, in like a theater aspect, like theater's a whole other animal. But like the way people have to come to understand going through the physicality of a character, like I loved seeing that play on on film. I loved the hands that they had in the writing. I really think the depth to the characters of Jesse and Celine is just. I, I don't think we get that a lot in other film, even when a, an actor is involved in the writing or production uh, to an extent. I, I just don't think that we get that. Like we, these are very special films in that regard. And I, I just, if they were to do another one, I would trust it in their hands. And um, I, I like what they've done so far, even if like, I'm not crazy about, you know, Jesse cheating on Celine. I'm not crazy about the idea. It's not like it totally doesn't, makes sense like if i really think about it i'm like they i i get where that's coming from so yeah i I trust i trust their judgment for sure if they were to make another i i think well another thing that affected like how much i might have liked or disliked uh midnight is Mm -hmm. because i did not really identify with either of them as people Mm -hmm. i had seen people say things that they had said and like they had thoughts that I know other people have, <laughs> have had thought. Oh, yeah. But I didn't personally identify with them. The interesting thing, though, is like I had this feeling while I was watching it, while the movie was unfolding before me, where I was like, I didn't like they said stuff and I thought that it was ill motivated or I was like, would they do that? I don't know. It sounds like shit to me. Mm-hmm. But I identified so well with the first like the first movie the most and then the second one like i there were it's subtle instances where i was like son of a bitch this guy's me you know yeah uh and like i know her like i've <laughs> met her before um and even situationally like i've had like you know a flame that felt kind of like that and it felt spontaneous and and you know romantic and whatever mm-hmm. and uh, like i've been on a first date one time and then, <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, like I had a feeling like partway through midnight where especially when they were arguing where I was like this I don't personally identify this uh with this, but I am interested in like several years from now when I am married and have been married for I don't know like 5 years or whatever. If I were to go back and rewatch this, would I get that same feeling that I'm currently feeling for Sunrise and then some of Sunset? Because yeah, like that's like I trusted I trusted they got me like as a person so well in those ones that they very well might have captured somebody like me in the future in those ones i just don't know it yet yeah and yeah that so yeah that whole idea of like trusting them with the story like i already i was already feeling that with before midnight where i was like i don't necessarily identify this 100 right now but i i trust them i think that yeah. i'm gonna probably get on their level yeah soon. feels like a very natural progression and um yeah very natural progression. Did you do you have anything else? Uh, let me just quickly go through my notes. I think we covered pretty much everything I wanted to. Um, uh, th- just the uh, the other thing that I just really liked about the f- the first film in particular were the moments of intimacy. Like if we're gonna tie it back to what we liked so much about the first film and the heart of the first film, the moments of intimacy was just um, something I think that these films capture so beautifully. 
and the little things of like tucking someone's hair behind their ear or thinking about it. Um, the, the closeness you can feel, you can imagine what it's like to be that close to a person physically and, um, thinking about kissing them. And I, I think that that's the heart that I, I keep coming back to in the films and it's a very settled in and comfort sort of, uh, level that they have in before midnight of like Julie just tits out, <laughs> like walking around, they have that level of comfort, but there's still moments of intimacy later where he leans into her and he's like, I'm going to pour you this glass of wine and we're kind of reaching a resolution here. And I hear what you're saying. And like, I just think that the, these films, if you just want to feel something in terms of like, Oh man, that so relates to my real life experience. They're just, they're just beautifully done in those small moments. And um, they don't try to appeal to everybody, but at the same time, that definitely can appeal to a general, a general audience. Um, we've all felt those moments and, and just, um, that's why I keep coming back to him. <laughs> why I suggest them are strangers. <laughs> have you seen Westworld? I have. I watched the first season. Yeah. One particular moment that jumps out at me that I thought was cool while I was watching Westworld is uh, they program these robots to act like humans. And um, they start like realizing that the machines are getting really complex when like they, there's something about like an eyebrow twitch or something. She does the thing with her pinky, I think, or like something like that right the yeah. first episode I, I think i know what you're talking about like she does like something. yeah they, they talk about how they're they're developing a level of complexity that's like like oh who did that that's a really good like subtle cue and when i think about like him like reaching to touch the hair because this none of this was improv nothing was not written in the script all of the emotions the actions all the dialogue everything was practiced rehearsed and then you know set in motion so when he's reaching up to like brush her hair out of the way it's like i got thinking about westworld because westworld is like they're using these robots to manipulate you into feeling feelings but it's recited it's rehearsed over and over but it seems like such a subtle feature to the person because it's the first time they're experiencing it yeah but to ethan hawk and and um i keep forgetting julie her name. delphi <laughs> you got it it's fine <laughs> yeah julie delphi they had done that take probably like nine times or something mm -hmm. so it's not technically generic but they they made it look like yeah I, it was I think, so sincere even though it was reversed it was so sincere yeah i think the subtle cues like that the sincerity came out a lot better in uh sunrise as opposed to sunset which is another reason why i liked sunrise more than sunset because i was picking up on that when they did the subtle like like do i brush your hair and stuff yeah and then in sunset actually it's it's julie who reaches over yeah to brush the hair instead of him I, I didn't the way that she tracked i was like oh, okay this is this is part of the act yeah um, absolutely. so i thought that was strong in the first one but, but yeah no, no i get that i i see what you're saying there and then versus you know the third one she just reaches right over and touches her husband um although i don't actually even remember yeah. if they said they're married but um she just reaches right over and touches his hair without hesitation and it's still i didn't know if they were married either i think that she said that they're not when they were in the church she said the girls asked about our wedding again and they said it was low-key and i think it implies that they never got married yeah i wrote down in my notes oh wow they were never married yeah but then i read the description of the film on google play and it said like well like shortly after being married they find that there's turmoil or whatever so i was like what the f are they fucking are they not married or are they married i don't know i'm gonna have to look into that a little bit more but to me it felt like they weren't which made the conversations about can you still handle me for another 56 years 
all that much more weighted. They don't have to have Scarier. this. They don't, they don't have to have a signature. They don't have to have a ring. They know they're going to be together for 56 years, even though there's this underlying tension that comes out a little later in their argument. They talk about their future, um, which, which leaves me with the hopefulness of them actively having a conversation at the end of the film post argument. Um, just, they talk about it so matter of factly, whether or not they're married. Um, it's so matter of fact that they are, going to be in each other's lives like that for 56 years um i thought was really lovely hearing them talk about it for me it, it scared me um mm. yeah i like maybe not from any sort of like deeply rational point but uh yeah it just like the the idea of not having the established which for me like i would prefer um being in a relationship and never even like you know, crossing the bridge of marriage uh, just because of the things that I've experienced and the things I've lived through. And then, of course, I'm a child of divorce. So it's a whole mm -hmm. point of contention for me. Yeah. I don't have anything against it. But for for me, I think what worked best for me is like the non-label of it. But at the same point, like when you don't have that established, like, yes, we are dedicated to each other, uh, that devotion uh, that is written into into the rules, it makes it like maybe they as two people don't see it as such a big deal if they break up instead of divorce yeah. yeah so it made me like worried like is she gonna like I, to what degree does she see this relationship as real if she doesn't if they and i'm not saying she but they yeah do they feel like they do have more wiggle room and that maybe that's why it was easier for one of them to cheat on the other because they're like we're not even married mm -hmm. you know it's not like in in the eyes of a catholic god that you know we're an item i can do whatever i want i'm my own person and they are both very individual yeah. And that's probably why they, they haven't decided to get married. Also, because, you know, Ethan, literally, he divorced. So he's like, I've been through that yeah. can of worms. And then she, as an independent woman, is like, I don't want the title of marriage. So fuck that. So you can see how they would both settle on, like, let's just not yeah. let's just be together, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I, I That's the vibe I got, was he's been through this divorce thing, and I don't think he wanted to revisit it. And exactly what you said of, like, I am an individual, and I don't. I could also see Celine's character being like, I don't want to bother with changing my name. Then we have kids together. It's not like we're eternally bound in some other way. Um, you know, what, what's the point of us going through a marriage? I can hear her saying that in her cute little French accent. So <laughs> that surprised me for them just because their level of connection, you would think they would be like, eh, fuck it. Why not? Let's just get married. You know, we know we're going to be together. That wouldn't have surprised me either, but when they confirmed that they weren't, I think, in that conversation. I can see it either way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was there anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to talk about? There was something that I forgot, but, you know. No, nah, I think, yeah, I think it's probably... I think we got it. I did have one thing in particular to say that I saw in an interview with uh, Ethan Hawke uh, about the movie. Uh, he said that early on, like his first impression of this movie, he was like, oh, so you want to do my dinner with Andre, but with young people. Did he say that? That's brilliant. He said it. And he said the fucking word. So like the kid, like, so context for the listener uh, early on when me and Emily were throwing like, you know, ballpark ideas of like what movie we should do and stuff. 
uh, I threw out my dinner with Andre, and then she threw out this movie. So it's like literally like the films are. I'm we very were excited to watch it, though. I I was thinking like maybe I should watch it for homework before this, but it's honestly I'm it's very near the top of that list. You know how everybody has like oh it's on the list like <laughs> my dinner yeah. with Andre is officially towards like top three. So I'm um, I'm looking forward to it. Um, this uh, walk down memory lane of the before series and and also watching something new in Before Midnight is just reminding me how much I like these and picking apart something in a film theory class was, I'm so glad I did because it, it, just being able to have these conversations with people is just um, it's just great it's cerebral without feeling pretentious is I think what I said to you the other day and I'm really looking forward to another film like my dinner with Andre to experience that and um, that'll be my first time watching it so I'm really excited you might be getting text messages from me being like oh my god about this particular i'm gonna i'm gonna have to rewatch it it's one of those like like these movies because it's so in uh dialogue intensive Mm -hmm. there's no amount that you can watch it and not forget things yeah Uh, and my dinner with andre like the first time i saw my dinner with andre i think i was 13 years old and it was just on like showtime or some premium channel and like when you're 13 years old like i like i horrible marks in school i'm always playing video games i don't give a shit about anything uh, and I got wrapped up in that movie and like what these fucking guys were saying. And I was like, like, yeah, I, I like I was watching it and watching it and watching it. And I like, got like two hours, like two hours, like one hour in. And I was like, why, why am I still watching this? How am I still here? Yeah. And I think that that's one of the first movies that I ever watched that like, I really respected it. As, Held like, your attention like that. Yeah. It, like it keeps you, because there's no explosions. There's no attention deficit disorder pandering. Like, yeah straight up it's an intellectual drive like it's pulling you towards it for some reason that you can't even explain you don't know it yeah for for all reasons this should be boring right now but i love it i love every second of it yeah so yeah that's one of those kinds of movies and yeah this sunset one um is there a particular people that you would suggest this film towards or is there like a, a set of people that you might say like well maybe this might not be your cup of tea um, I wouldn't say it's not a cup of tea for anybody. Uh, just maybe if you're not in the mood to watch, I wouldn't even say if you're not in the mood to watch something heavy because like, it's not heavy. It's uh, th- this third film was weighty in a way, but like, if you want a nice, I, I picture, you know, you set up the charcuterie board, you get your cheese and you got your wine. And you're like, I want to feel kind of like smart <laughs> today. Like that's definitely like a good vibe to be in. If you're going to watch uh, the first two films. Um, but they are just captivating. I, I also think you could just put your feet up with a bag of Skittles and you'd enjoy them. I think they're very accessible. A lot of what they talk about are um, things that we navigate now. I feel like if I had watched Before Sunrise when I was a teenager, I might not have got some of those things. They would have gone over my head. But being around the same ages of Jesse and Celine the first time I watched it, I think helped. And um, I would imagine for most of the people listening to this, they're probably within the same age range um at least to be watching you know the first two so I, I i think that they're definitely worth it for anybody i wouldn't exclude it from anybody definitely it's conversation heavy um and you need to uh you need you need to pay attention to the little gestures so when you're in the mood for kind of like a movie night like that that's what i would recommend yeah yeah i i 
Yeah, well, both of us, like, I have a, a, a podcast literally dedicated to the analysis of film. Yeah. Uh, and then you've, you've been to film school, like to some degree, I, I, was, or theater? I had a communications minor. So I had a couple of courses where I had to watch and analyze film or short stories and things. Um, so I also took a class called Images of Masculinity. So if you ever want to bring me in here and we can dissect Fight Club. Uh, I'm super into oh, it. I bitch about Fight Club all of the fucking time. Oh my god! <laughs> Later and episode. If you, oh, <laughs> if you if you read uh, Fight Club Two, the graphic novel, Chuck Palahniuk literally says in the book that Tyler Durden is an infectious brain disease that's like driving people to and still like you go watch fight club and they talk about it with any kind of bro and they're like bro it's like yeah. about like feeling disconnected as a man it's like what well, yeah yeah that's a whole other episode i can't no, i think you and i are on the same page about this so i definitely would love to unpack it uh same thing with v for vendetta it's like yeah. ugh, if you want to get real <laughs> fucked up though the fucked up part is that fight club resonated so much with people that are like that and that does say something whether or not i like that it does yeah so it's a real complicated fucking so that's the idea of like subjective truths and like you both see the same thing but you know one person sees the flower is red and the other person sees the flower is yellow but what does the fucking word red and yellow mean i don't know (laughs) (sighs) um yeah so that was my experience though so i dipped my toe into the pool of analyzing film and um getting to, getting to the point of hoity-toityness and like mm, this director and his i don't i don't get there um which, uh i don't get to that level i like just like shut up and let me enjoy things sometimes is usually how i feel um so this these movies really fall in that wonderful in between of like i feel like if i wanted to be snobbish these are easy to be snobbish about but at the same time yeah. they are so base level in talking about universal human experiences and um so many people could relate to these films and so i don't think um i don't think they're excluded from anybody or any type of person and that's probably what i like about them the most um but yeah just it's it feels like you're eavesdropping on a conversation between two very interesting people (laughs) and I, i definitely would recommend it to anybody yeah yeah i i would the the thing is like i don't know there's so many different kinds of movies out there and i've I've seen movies where i'm like this is fucking trash like <laughs> i hate this like i i've also said that like i don't think that there's a single movie that i ever regret watching ever because i don't i i think that every single movie i've ever seen for me like i've always gotten something from it and if i think that something sucks then i now have a reason why it sucks yeah. and i still gain something from that yeah uh but not everybody's like that um so yeah, with with some people like with subtleties and communication and emotional intelligence, uh, I definitely think that yeah, if you consider yourself any amount of emotional intelligent, then this is a fan that you're gonna feel like right at home. This is a yeah. very warm film for you. But there are people that I know like maybe that they're a little too down with Fight Club, and uh, <laughs> I yeah, I think it might get lost on them. Um, I think it's worth a shot. I think that no matter who you are, it's worth a shot because it's kind of like 13 year old me watching my dinner with Andre. Like that is not a film that if you said, yeah, it's two men talking at a table about life experiences. And that is the whole film. Like I, a 13 year old me would be like, all right, can I fucking play Mario? though? Like, <laughs> I don't want to do that. 
but you know then i there i was captivated it's, it's kind of like a like an it scratched an itch i didn't know was there yeah um, that that's exactly <laughs> the way to describe these films though my first experience watching it it was scratching an itch i didn't know i had um and that's definitely why i was like oh i gotta watch the first one now i gotta show this one to to everybody in my life and like uh, that's why i suggested it to you is just the hold it took on me and i'm like i bet that this could evoke a feeling in people that they didn't know that they had either. That's exactly what it was. Yeah, it's like uh, butt stuff, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it's not me. I don't know. But the, the thing is, you have to try it. You have you got to try it. You got to try it once. Then you can bitch about it. Then you can complain about it. But you got to try it. You got to open the door <laughs> and figure it out, you know? So for you, viewer, you got to watch this movie. And if halfway through you fell asleep or like you feel absolutely nothing calling you to the film, then turn it off, you know? Yeah. You know, you know, do you know? I know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's anybody. I, I, I yeah. The one holdup is, is because I love film and, and theater shit so much. Yeah. And, uh, I, as much as maybe not as much, but I assume you, you do too. So that makes us, that does give us a bias as far as suggesting this film for people. Yeah. When, if you enjoy connecting to a performance, as I imagine most people do this, these are the films for you. Um, just connecting to an, uh, to a character. Um, I, I think if not in their personality, in what they say and being like, mm -hmm. that's happened to me too. Um, I, I think that that's why I'm so passionate about sharing them with people is I think that, um there's something for everyone yeah i think the digestibility goes beyond the the dialogue and the characters though because the settings are always very picturesque yeah. um the soft lighting is on fucking it's turned up to 11 the whole time uh besides like, when like they're a, sitting like a pantyhose stocking over the camera <laughs> it's just like filmed through like a pleasant lens yeah it's it's all soft lighting so i i think that like no matter who you are even if if you aren't like huge on the dialogue or something, there's still something for it. Cause it's just di digestible. It's like red velvet cake. Yeah. It's just got that texture. I think there's layers to why it's enjoyable where I could say that if you're like a film student, fantastic film for you, or, you know, if you're just like a romantic, it's fantastic for you. Or if you consider yourself staunchly a non-romantic, then the cynicism that this film brings is for you. You know, there's so many different people that this could be for that I think I'm in agreement with you where I would suggest this to anybody. Mm -hmm. um, and the make or break thing is like, either you're going to love it or you're going to be like, Meh. and yeah. I think that the chance that you're going to love it as much as you probably will is worth the risk of running into a movie. That's meh, you know? Yeah. Cause the payoff is, is worth it. It's a good film. And I already know the uh, band that I'm going to suggest for this movie and i want to say it now because i want to say it to you so that you listen to them because honestly like it almost feels like a soundtrack like when, like i have loved this band for like probably like a little over a year now hey she got a pen I she got, got a paper <laughs> and i actually have the record right there it's hanging on my wall but the band is called always a l v v a y s i already tried to spell it with a w twice okay hold on <laughs> always always uh they're canadian okay but yeah even if you watch like their like watch a, like a music video from them and um it's it's just it's soft lighting it's like retro it's it they call it dream pop is the the genre mm -hmm. which fits like it, but for me like the way that i've described it to people before that i've suggested them to uh it's like mainlining cotton candy <laughs> 
yeah like i like i just ugh, it's like it's so romantic and gushy it's it's what it fits was the this one you recommended in the last episode with the guy who was featured on the macklemore song downtown what was that band funky something uh foxy foxy shazam foxy that was shazam or was that, that a, was a couple episodes ago oh i'm sorry i've been looking yeah. at the, your line of work so <laughs> okay foxy Shazam. that was the one i lost know. in translation and i was like wait i like the song downtown and that guy's ridiculous voice so i call back to that episode listener if you haven't heard that one on the podcast yet foxy shazam foxy shazam is uh in a sentence piano rock and roll from hell uh it's so over the top they have new stuff that's coming out that's a little bit different than their older stuff i like their first two albums uh the most but but foxy shazam is worth your fucking time they they are a personal favorite their production quality is if you want to test out a good sound system they are who you go to they have the the highs the lows the quick parts the slow parts Mm -hmm. and then his vocals eric nally's he's the singer of the band his vocal tones are fucking oh yeah but yeah a perfect band for records though like listening to like vinyl yeah would be uh always always i'm gonna put that because they're really warm yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna put that one at the top of my list i'm not gonna bullshit you and say it's on the list somewhere i'm gonna listen to that i'll make a point um and i'll mention it to you when i inevitably text you while watching uh my dinner with andre so (laughs) all right well i have been kyle i have been emily and this has been not film school absolutely not definitely not a film school conversation no none (laughs) okay well bye